Welcome to Sulphur Springs Baptist Church Sermon Audio. For more information, please visit our website at sulphurspringsbc.com. We'll be in our passage today in Colossians chapter 1. We'll get our text. We'll continue our thought from last week, sort of a two-part series that I put together um, in Colossians here, 15 through 23. I broke it up into two different parts. If you weren't here last week, or just to recap a couple of things, uh, we looked at a couple of things. The look, we looked at how Jesus created everything, and how He is the Creator and Sustainer of everything. We looked at how He wasn't created; He's always been here. And then we also looked at how He was the head and the leader of the church. And so today we're going to continue that thought. And we looked at the supremacy of Jesus last week, and this week we're going to look at how His supremacy bridges the gap. For you and I to be able to go to Jesus, uh, to be able to go to the Father. And so if you have your places in Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading. If you would stand with us at verse 19. In verse 19, it says this, words will be on the screen as well. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. And having made peace through the blood of the cross, by him reconciled all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have reconciled in the body of the flesh through the death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, in which you have preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Father, I pray that your blessings upon this scripture. I pray that you'll give me strength, give me power this morning as we look at your word, as we look at your son, as we look at his death that has reconciled us to you. I thank you, Father, for what you've done in your name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this, and I do covet your prayers, several people have texted me and, and said they've been praying for me this morning and even stopped me in the parking lot, and, and I appreciate that. I covet your prayers as I get up to preach. I don't consider myself worthy, but I just want to do justice what God has for us in his scripture this morning. So I want to reiterate that, that statement that we said last week at the beginning of our message, and I want it to flow through this message as well. And that question is in your notes, and your notes are provided for you in your bulletin if you picked up one, and it's this, what is the role that Jesus is playing in your life? What is the role that Jesus is playing in your life? Is he just someone that you go to, as I said last week, as a spare tire? You go to him when you need him, or is he someone that you cannot live without? My kids are, 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 they, they are starting to learn some things, and, and, and the other day, Jade, we were at my brother's house. And she stopped him and she said, Jason, Uncle Jason, she said, you know, you can only go three days without water before you die. Okay. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. And she was like, yeah, you can go three years without food and still live. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're still working on the, on the food thing, but she's understanding the water. But I, I said that to say this, how long can you go without Jesus before your life ceases to make sense? And so in our life, as we think of that, What is the role that Jesus is playing in our life? We continue in these verses to look about the nature of Jesus and who he is. And in verse 19, 
it says, For it pleased the Father that in all things, all fullness should dwell in him. And so I wrote this first point down. He was more than just a man. Jesus was more than just a man. Just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, one of the news reporters came out and he said that Jesus was just a good person. Jesus didn't come. He wasn't perfect. He was just another man that lived a good life. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible tells us that Jesus was not just a man. He was God himself. He was 100% man and he was 100% God. And so when we think of that, when we allow that to indwell our life and begin to think that he is not just a man, he continues to live forever for us, I hope that it changes the way we look at Jesus. I hope that when we see him and when we read scripture, scripture comes alive because we see that Jesus just didn't die. He died so that he could raise again. He could come back to life. You see, when we also think of that, when we see that Jesus was 100% God, we see that God put everything that he had into Jesus. He put all of his perfectness, he put all of his character, he put all of his nature, everything that indwells God, his omnipresence, his everything is put in to Jesus. In John 14, 8 through 10, it talks about how there was not a part of God missing from Jesus. And when we begin to consume our mind with Jesus as being God, and even as Paul repeated this statement one page over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, For in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that was God was put into Jesus. He is unique a statement that i heard this week i'm a big podcast listener i like to listen to different leadership podcasts preaching podcasts i like to as i'm driving around i like to play those things and one of the statements that i heard on a podcast this week was this the pastor had said i've texted this probably 50 times to people throughout this day and this was the statement god is able i want you to ask yourself that question what is going on in your life right now that God is not able to solve it. That God is not able to deliver you from that. There's nothing that you can think of because God is able. And if everything that God is was put into Jesus, then Jesus therefore is able. He is the only one qualified to reconcile us to God. Look at that first part of chapter, verse 20. It says, In having made peace through the blood of the cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Jesus made peace for you and me. Think about how when life is crazy, when the storms come in our life and things are going out of control, we don't understand, we can't figure out what is, is actually going on and, and we just sort of step back and we read this verse and it says that Jesus made peace. Jesus brought peace into a world that was not peaceful. can sort of relate to that today. Peaceful isn't the term that the news media is saying. There's not peace on the streets. There's not peace anywhere. But yet the Bible tells us that God, through Jesus, brought peace 
to us through his blood. As we begin, as I began studying this, as I began thinking of this, it, my mind went back to two years ago when we were at camp at Look Up Lodge. And Greg Boone made this statement. He said there's an, and some of our teenagers will remember this, there's an overarching meta-narrative to scripture. How many of you teenagers remember that big long statement? Okay, a couple of us. So what it basically means is there's a, an overlying theme through all of scripture. And this, this theme is, there was perfectness. Bad came into the world and created that perfectness into not so perfect. There had to be a way to bridge that perfectness back to God. So there was a Savior who came into the world to bridge that gap. He had to die. There had to be an ultimate sacrifice. And after that sacrifice, brought peace. He said, now take that thought and apply it to every movie you've ever watched. And it's that same theme. Hallmark movies, same thing. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, same thing. There's something really good. Batman, Gotham City's perfect. A bad villain comes in. Joker comes in and ruins everything. Batman, Bruce Wayne, has to make an ultimate sacrifice in order to redeem Gotham City. And at the end, there is a savior that is born and Batman is there to rule the world. Okay, in everything you can think of, that is what happens. And he says, you know what? It is programmed in us to think like that because that's how God made us. God made us to think. You don't think that when the writers of Superman sit down and they begin writing, because Superman is my favorite superhero, when they begin to sketch out those, those artists, they don't magically just think of, well, Superman's going to have to die at the end of this movie. He's going to come back somehow, and he's going to come back stronger so that he can save the world. Okay, they took that from Scripture, and they're making millions and millions of dollars off of it. But it's right here in Scripture. And when we begin to, eh, I like to relate things to other things. And I begin to relate the life of Jesus. And it's not a comparison. It's not a perfect comparison. I'm, I'm not saying this is exactly. But when you begin to think of the life of Jesus, and you can see that life in Superman. He's from a different world. He's 100% man, but yet he's 100% Kryptonian. He comes into this world and there's badness there, and yet he makes a sacrifice to redeem the world and save the world. That's literally the story of Jesus. And our mainstream media has taken and they've hijacked the story, and all of a sudden we become to be numb to the thought of Jesus. We begin to be numb to the thought that he's more than just a man. And we need to be thinking on this right here, number two. He made a way to God for us. Verse 20 through 22 says this. And having made peace through the blood of the cross, we just read this, by the reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things on the earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he hath reconciled. He used that word reconciled over and over again. In the body of his flesh through the death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So the first thing I put underneath this point here is man sinned. Last week we began talking about this thought of God created everything perfect and then man sinned in the garden. At first, that first man and woman were perfect 
And sin came in and they began to disobey God. They could not be God's friend anymore, to put it plainly. Because God cannot be friends with sin. And so, because they were enemies with God, everyone else has sinned and is now an enemy to God. Sin separates men and women from God. Verse 21 says that we are alienated and enemies. Man, we begin to think of that. We begin to think of the innocence of a child. The innocence of a seven, six, five-year-old and how, how innocent they are at times. The Bible says that they are enemies to God. Think of someone that is an enemy to the United States or an enemy to you and how when someone comes and attacks the United States, we want to retaliate and we want to take action upon those things. That's the vengeance that God has against his enemies. And we begin to see that, and Paul says that we are the enemies of God. It separates us. I don't want to be near an enemy. Okay, when I was in school, and I had a guy that I didn't like, I didn't want to go sit down at the table with him. I wanted to sit on the other side of the cafeteria, as far away from him as I could, because I did not like that person. Sometimes it was my next door neighbor. His name was David Melton. Okay, he was born one day before me. Okay, I was born December 8th. He was born December 7th. Okay, because he was older than me, okay, he would try to prove his authority on me. And so I didn't want to be near him sometimes. Okay, he was an enemy to me. And God says that we are an enemy to him. And that should scare us. That should frighten us. Because not only does sin separate men and women from God, sin affects our physical world. Why is the world the way it is now? Because 6,000 years ago, a man and a woman by the name of Adam and Eve sinned and caused bad things to happen into the world. A plant never died. An animal never died until man and woman sinned. And they brought death upon everything. They corrupted everything. That's why God says that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Because man has affected the physical world. In 2 Peter 3.33, it says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will not be any sin. Think about that. We're going to be perfect. We're not going to lie. We're not going to cheat. We're not going to steal. We're not going to have racial problems. We're not going to have sin problems. There's not going to be child molestation. There's not going to be anything that is wrong in this world, in that new world. Because God will make us perfect and we will be with him. And that should excite us. That should excite us to want to go and tell everyone we can about this new world that God has for us. This new plan. This thing that God has created for us. But we also have to look at this. And it talks about it here, but it also talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5. Just a couple of pages over if you want to go there. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. God is angry about sin. Not only does did man sin and it separates us and we're his enemies, but Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6 it says this, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. God is angry about sin. The results of sin is death. 
Romans, 3, Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death. And there is a price to pay for the sin that we have. And in order for us to pay that price, there's nothing that we could do. I can't die a martyr's death and go to heaven. I can't do everything I possibly can to be good, go to church Monday, go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, go to small groups, go to everything I can. I will not be able to do anything good in and of myself to be able to reach or attain the goodness that God requires. And so what did God have to do? He had to send his son Jesus to live a perfect and sinless life. And it says this in verse 21. It says that you were sometimes alienated, yet now he reconciled. God is the one that has reconciled us to him by punishing his own son. Paul reminded the Colossian church here that Christ made them clean from their sins. That there was nothing that they could do to become clean. God was not angry with them as an individual. He was angry with their sin. He was angry with the actions that they had done. And those actions had separated them from God. And God says, you know what? I want to unite people. I want to unite people ultimately to Jesus, but I want to unite all Christians together. The third thing under this point is God rescues men. God rescues men. Now the sad part about this verse is, these verses is, this doesn't mean that everyone will accept this gift that Jesus has made way. Not everyone will accept the gift of salvation. Now Jesus has made it very clear that all he would like to come to repentance. But I'm not naive enough to understand that not everyone will accept that gift. And so the object for us is just, just to simply go out and to tell every single person we can about this awesome, wonderful gift that makes us friends with God. Because no one wants to be an enemy with God. If you go up to a random person on the street and say, do you want God to be mad at you? I would venture out to probably say that 99% of those people would say, no, I don't want God to be mad at me. And so the opportunity for us to tell them that there's an opportunity for us to become friends with God instead of his enemy. The most awesome thing that God does when he rescues us is at the end of verse 22. It says, in the body of his flesh, through the death, he presents us three ways. He presents us first, holy. We were once dead and unclean and corruptible. And the Bible says that Jesus, through his death, creates us holy. We are made heirs, as we talked about last week. We are made one in unification with Jesus. We are holy and our life that is scarred by sin, that is corrupted by sin, that we've done horrible, unthinkable things, has now became, caused us to become holy. And when we think about that, when we think about how Jesus has made us holy, man, we're indebted to him. We should want to serve him because of that. The second thing that it says it makes us is without blemish. It says unblameable. It means there's nothing there of blemish. And the third thing is this. It's free from accusation. The Bible says unprovable, unreprovable in his sight. Free from accusation. God rescues us and causes us to be holy without blemish and without accusation. Because his blood is the only thing that can do that. 
as I begin thinking of an illustration to, to sort of allow us to visualize what this actually looks like, God's bridge and God's gap that he does for us. My first thought was this, because I've been there. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I went when I was a little boy, when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. Probably not a little boy. I was a teenager. Um, I went there. We went on a three-week vacation. We took a week to get out there. We stayed there for a week, and we took a week to get back. It was the longest three weeks of my life. I had to spend three weeks in cabins and in a camper with my family. And it was just, as you can imagine, four kids, because my oldest sister didn't go with a mom and a dad. Uh, tensions can get high. Been on the road for three weeks. And so there were some, some arguments. There were some times. There were some good memories made. But I, got, I went to go see the awesome Grand Canyon. As I began thinking of this, I began thinking this massive gap. How many of y'all have ever seen the Grand Canyon? Okay. How many of y'all have ever heard of the Grand Canyon? Okay. How many of y'all have maybe ever seen a picture of the Grand Canyon? All right. We've got everybody included now. Um, the Grand Canyon's there. And I began thinking, you know what would be almost an impossible feat would be to take a bridge and put it on one side of the Grand Canyon and span to the other side. And I thought, you know what, that would be an awesome illustration of how man couldn't do that. And then I began studying and man's actually done that. Um, so that illustration didn't work for me. I was like, man, that would be a great illustration. But there's actually two bridges that go from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other and you can actually drive over it. I was like, well, man's done that. What is something that man couldn't do? Has anyone in here been to Mount Everest? Okay, there's only like a handful of people that have actually ever went up all the way to the top of Mount Everest and back down. I've read some books about them. Um, it's a really cool feat. But I begin to think Mount Everest, other side of the world, Nepal. Okay, the largest mountain, I think on the eastern seaboard, if I'm correct, is Mount Mitchell. Okay, if I'm correct on that, I think I am, I may be wrong. But Mount Mitchell in North Carolina, the tallest peak on the eastern coast, and now let's say that man decides, you know what, we're going to take a bridge from the top of Mount Mitchell and span it to the top of Mount Everest. Man cannot do that, okay? There's a big ocean in between there, okay? So man would not be able to make this bridge from the top of Mount Mitchell to the top of Mount Everest. And when we think of that span, go home and look and see how far that span is. That is the gap that God says, you know what, I'm going to fill that gap with my son. I'm going to take that gap that is impossible for man to do, and I'm going to fill it with my son. He made a way for us to come to God. And then this last thing, this third point, as I continue and I finish up, he wants us to continue in the faith. Verse 23, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and I have preached unto every creature under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. The wonderful thing about the Christian life is it's not just a moment where we accept Jesus in our life and we get to do absolutely nothing the rest of our life. We get to continue in our faith. And it looks different for every single person in here. There's not a one-size-fits-all, do this, this, and this, and now you've continued in your faith. Discipleship is different for every single person. Now, there are some common liars. There are some common things that every Christian must do. Read your Bible, pray, study God's word, continue to grow in your faith, and ultimately continue to reach others and disciple others. Those are some common things upon every Christian that we must do. But there are some other things. And the, the Christians at Colossae 
heard the true message of the gospel, which is this message right here. And Paul says to them, continue in the faith, but not only you, this is in your notes, not only us, but others also. Where is our mindset? Are we thinking of others also? Are we just thinking of us? The Bible says that Jesus began talking to his disciples and he began to say, love your neighbor. And one of the disciples in the publican said, Jesus, who is our neighbor? And Jesus said, every person around you is your neighbor. Not just your neighbor that lives beside you. Not just Hauser that lives beside me or, or Chuck that lives beside me. But every single person that you come in contact is your neighbor. And the Bible says that we should love others and we should also bring others to him. Paul, in this Christian manner, preached a genuine message of the gospel to all areas of the world. He says that, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature. Every creature, Paul said, he tried to preach to because he wasn't just consumed with himself and those that were directly around him. He wanted to go to everyone. As our musicians begin to come and play, I want to sort of wind this down by saying this. Are we disciples who are making disciples? What's the role of Jesus in our life? But then ultimately, are we disciples that are making disciples? Are we telling others about Jesus? Now, we can't do that in a traditional sense today because life is different and COVID has changed a lot of things. But what we can do is we can be loving. How, Jesus said, how will they know that you're my disciple, that you love one another? And if I were to go and ask your coworker, would they say that you're a loving person? Would they say, yeah, that person, they love everyone. They share love, and I don't understand why they love people. They love people that are mean to them. They love people that curse. They love people that are, are bad people, but yet they still love everyone. And are we disciples who are reaching out and trying to make disciples? It's an ongoing, everyday process. The newest fear, in conclusion here, and the newest fear that is out among young people is this. It's called FOMO. Does anyone know what FOMO means? Okay, a couple people. Fear of missing out. So I began reading about this this past week, and uh, um, the main Barna did a study on fear of missing out, and there was a lot of graphs and statistics. And I thought, you know, I could bring those graphs, and I could bring those statistics of how many kids spend so much time on their phone or do this on their devices. But I really just wanted you to think of this. This fear of missing out that is so prevalent among young people, they're fearful of missing out on someone maybe texting them. Maybe an email that they may get if young people even check email. Maybe it's um, a new fad or a new trend that comes out on social media or TikTok or a new TikTok dance that they're not wanting to miss out on. And they begin to consume themselves with not missing out on the fad. Some of the statistics were young people are waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning just to check their phone because maybe someone texted them. Maybe there was a new video that came out. And the first thing they're doing when they wake up is to get their phone out and to check it. And that when this study went through, that teenagers that went several minutes or hours away from their phone, their heart rate began to go up. Their blood pressure began to go up. They began to become so anxious because they were afraid they were going to miss something. 
They were afraid that they were going to miss out on some new video, some text message, some group message that would have happened and they would have missed out on. And as I began to think of that and how silly that was, my mind immediately went to this. Are we fearful of other people missing out on this good news? Are we that consumed with the gospel that it consumes us at 2 o'clock in the morning? That God wakes us up and God says, you know what? You haven't talked to that person about Jesus. You haven't shared that person that you work with, that you've known for 10, 15, 20 years. You've never talked to them about Jesus. Is that same fear of missing out in our life about the gospel? Because it convicted me when I heard that and when, when God revealed that to me. Because I began to think, they're missing out eternally. Someone may miss out on a cell phone call or a text message temporarily and they can make that call back. But there are people that we come in contact with every single day. And do we think that person is going to miss out on the gift of God? And we're so fearful that we cannot sleep at night until we go and talk to that person. I've got a book on my bookshelf. It's called Praying Hyde. I read this book when I was in college and his name was John Hyde and he was known for praying all the time. He had what's called camel knees and he had calluses on his knees because he was on his knees so much praying. He prayed every day that God would give him someone to talk to about Jesus. And he went out and every day of his life for years he found someone just to talk about Jesus to. He said one day it just he wasn't as concerned and he he wasn't thinking about it and he came home that night and he hadn't talked to anyone about Jesus. And he began to get convicted because he prayed and he told God, every day I'm going to talk to someone about Jesus. And he said that he got down on his knees that night to pray and he said God would not let him pray or go to sleep that night because he hadn't talked to anyone. He said he got up from his prayer bench that he prayed at, he went outside and there was a man on the corner just standing there. He said, I went to that man, I began to talk to him about Jesus he said, and he didn't accept Jesus, but I made a commitment to God that I'm going to try every single day to talk to someone different about Jesus. Is that our prayer? Is that our goal that we're going to just try to talk to someone about Jesus? I'm not saying you have to go through this big elaborate prayer, but just bring up your story to someone because you're afraid that they're going to miss out on the good things that you've been given. The grace that God shared to you is the same grace that God will share to them. We have to be willing to go out and to share that good news. So as the musicians play, our invitation is going to start, and I want to challenge you this. What is the role that Jesus is playing in our life? And are we disciples that are making disciples? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this thought that you've given me. I pray that it touched someone's life. I know that it worked on my life this week. It's a challenge that I've been preaching to myself all week. Am I fearful of someone else missing out on the gospel? So I pray, Lord, that you would just help us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please remember to drop a rating and subscribe to get our latest audio.